live from inside your speakers, this is Hardcore Casual, your place for weekly gaming and entertainment news. Please welcome your host, Whack Ops. Greetings from Earth, this is not your leader. My name is Whack Ops. How you doing? Welcome to Hardcore Casual, episode 22. Woo! What a week we have ahead of us. Okay, quick notes. What are we getting into this episode? We're going to be talking about Sony's purchase of Bungie. Of course, that's going to be our leading story this week. Later on in the episode, we're definitely going to be talking about the announcements surrounding Call of Duty, Grand Theft Auto, and many other announcements that we got this week, as well as providing you guys a review rewind on the latest release, Dying Light 2 Stay Human. So definitely tune in and don't forget to support the show by writing into our email, wackops at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at wackops. That's W H A C K O P Z. Please subscribe, share, download, and review if you're so inclined. But let's jump right into our headliners where we tell you what made the front page this week in games and entertainment. And it all comes down to the latest big blockbuster acquisition by one of the big three. That is Sony's purchase of Bungie for $3.6 billion. Now, that sounds like a big number, not quite as big as what we talked about with the Activision Blizzard acquisition just a couple of weeks ago. But it should be mentioned that $1.2 billion of that $3.6 billion, that is one third of the total price, is being used for talent retention. There's a couple of things about this deal that make it particularly unusual. One, that is the amount of money that's actually going to employees for talent retention. Of course, it's not going to be split all the way evenly and things like that. That's not really how most of these clauses within big acquisition and merger deals is written. Um, In terms of talent retention, most of the time, they're not getting broke off a third of the total price. But, and more on that in a moment... But also the level of autonomy Sony is allowing for Bungie, not only in terms of their business relationship, but creatively as well. So let's address some of the big ones right off the bat, because with the Microsoft acquisition deal, most people wanted to know, is Call of Duty going exclusive? That is an ongoing conversation. In this situation, we have a fairly definitive and straightforward answer. So let me go ahead and read you a piece from the Bungie blog post announcing the deal. Quote, we remain in charge of our destiny. We will continue to independently publish and creatively develop our games. We will continue to drive one unified Bungie community. Our games will continue to be where our community is, wherever they choose to play. Now, they further on went on to reiterate this on the Bungie Frequently Asked uh, Questions page, the FAQ page. Quote, question. Will the Destiny 2 experience on non-PlayStation platforms be impacted by Bungie becoming a part of PlayStation? Answer. No. We want to maintain the same great experience you already have on your platform of choice. Question. Bungie has future games in development. Will they now become PlayStation exclusives? Answer. No. We want the worlds we are creating to extend to anywhere people play games. We will continue to be self-published, creatively independent, and we will continue to drive one unified Bungie community. So with that, now you have most of the base facts. Let's kind of get to how we got here, because a lot of people don't really know the full history of Bungie. They have a long history, not only with Microsoft, but with Activision and now with Sony. So 
they were the original developer of Halo. They were purchased by Microsoft back in 2000. After Halo 3 in 2007, Bungie split from Microsoft. In 2010, only three years later, or excuse me, in 2009, um, only two years later, they signed a 10-year publishing deal with Activision Blizzard. After that, they cut the deal short and they bought out the rest of their contract. They bought back their publishing rights from Activision Blizzard back in 2019, only a couple of years ago. And now they've been purchased by Sony. So this group of people, this development studio and publishing studio, depending on what time period you're talking about, has had a somewhat tumultuous relationship with having any level of oversight in terms of what they want to publish, when they want to publish, what they're creating, what they're developing. I understand why now there was so much talk of autonomy, not only in the deal, but also how they addressed their fans and their fan base. I think it's really going to be interesting to see how their relationship, Sony and Bungie, is moving forward and how Bungie chooses to do business even when it does not benefit Sony. Um, I would be surprised if any of that got to us in any kind of public-facing manner. You know what I mean? We always hear rumors and leaks and things like that, but my guess is if there was a split, we wouldn't find out about it until that split happens. But no, I, I'm I'm guessing that this is actually going to be a deal that goes forward, and hopefully Sony can kind of take a little bit of the Microsoft approach in terms of allowing these different development teams a certain level of autonomy and creative control to produce a better product. Because we've seen countless, countless examples of too many hands in the pot, too many cooks in the kitchen, when it comes from miscommunication between development studios and publishing uh, companies. So very, very interesting stuff. We'll, we'll have to see where this takes us. But there are some things we have to discuss because when we talked about the Microsoft Activision deal, one of the big things that people talked about was company culture. Now, I want to read to you a quote from IGN's Rebecca Valentine. She did some reporting back in December uh, of 2021 in regards to the company culture issues that have been occurring at Bungie over the last few years. So, quote, IGN has spoken to 26 current and former employees that have worked at Bungie within the last decade. Their accounts of the studio's work culture encompass a wide range of experiences. They span overt sexism, boys club culture, crunch, and HR protection of abusers, as well as more complex stories of microaggressions, systematic inequalities, and difficulties being heard. However, interviewees also include a number of more recent employees who, despite their own hurts, truly believe the studio is slowly but steadily improving and are candid about the immense challenge of trying to turn such a massive ship in a better direction. So, definitely had to address that. Definitely got to talk about how their company culture may change, or not, given the level of autonomy that they're being allowed over at Sony. Um, Microsoft, from what we've heard by different development studios that have been purchased by them, their company culture has improved incrementally. Let's hope that we can see the same with Sony's purchase of Bungie. Now, now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about the discourse that people have been having with this purchase. Many people have insinuated that Sony has overpaid for Bungie, but $1.2 of the total, $3.6 is 
completely contingent on not only talent retention, so people have to stay with the company for that $1.2 billion to come their way, but also, presumably, the delivery of new IP. Uh, and this will be ensuring that Bungie and Sony are working toward the same goals. They're rowing in the same direction. This acquisition, honestly, it has long-reaching benefits for both companies, particularly when it comes to talent on the Bungie side and tech on the Sony side. So let's break that down a little bit. How does this deal benefit Sony? Well, for one thing, Bungie has created arguably the most viable multi-platform, multiplayer, live service shooter in the industry today. I don't think there's too many people who can argue that unless you are a big Apex Legends fan. And if you want to line up dollars and cents, that's fine. But in terms of longevity and how long they've been doing what they're doing, I think Bungie definitely, if it's not one, it's 1B. You know what I mean? It's a 1A, 1B kind of situation. Now, Sony is known for their single-player narrative-driven experiences, right? But they need to make a push into multiplayer in a big way in order to sub survive in the future. Uh, I mean, outside of just Microsoft, I think the industry as a whole, in general, has been making its way toward more live service and more multiplayer games because they are an active driver of microtransactions. And if you look at, we just had financial reports, which we're going to be talking about a little later in the show. We just had financial reports for Q1 come in. Um, and we, we really want to be able to see where these companies are making money. And guess what? Most of the money is coming from these microtransactions that are derivative of people playing multiplayer games. So if Sony wants to compete, I think it's important that they go ahead and invest in companies that are going to be able to get them over that hill. Now, beside that, Sony will also be able to reach more people, more players, by incentivizing multiplayer going forward and expand their Spartacus Game Pass program. I think it's important that people understand that they are working toward a Game Pass competitor, and this is a huge boon for that business model. Not to mention, it can potentially, this Game Pass uh, subscription service, along with the multiplayer aspects, can help fund a lot of those single-player narrative-driven experiences that we all love from Sony. Those are very expensive games to make, and they can only pull down so much money without it being uh, an expandable DLC microtransaction-driven game. Straight up. The other games make more money even if we do enjoy these experiences and we can take them with us. But outside of Sony, let's go ahead and talk about how this benefits Bungie. So Bungie will now have access to resources, both tech and money resources, to be able to bring a better experience to their players, both for Destiny and for future IP, which I think arguably all of us can be excited about. Even if you're not in the Destiny community, I think you would want to root for people getting more out of the game that they've invested. Oh God, how long has Destiny 2 been out? Five years, seven years, whatever? You know what I mean? If you've invested all this time in this game, I think this is actually a good thing for Destiny fans. But outside of just the game, by being able to stay somewhat independent, Bungie will be able to create what they want, 
rather than have to fit into a PlayStation style of games, right? But that's not the real kicker. The real kicker is Sony will help Bungie expand into film and television because Bungie has expressed in the past they want to be a multimedia company. And I think this is going to be what pushes them into that space. Don't be surprised if you start seeing Bungie television shows and Bungie movies coming up soon. I mean, even Bungie comic books and, and things like that. I think that would be great for the fans. I think it would be great for Bungie as a whole. And I think that the Destiny universe, if, if that's something that you're interested in, you can only be excited about. And I love seeing creators being able to have more toys to play with. You know what I mean? More access, more ability to do what they want and see their ideas taken all the way out to the 10th. So, what's my take on this whole deal? Kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at the industry as a whole, I don't have much comment on Sony and Bungie in particular, because I think ultimately this is a pretty decent deal for both sides, and I, I want to see more when these big deals happen. It's hard to be able to say on day one, on day seven, on day 30, how you feel about it, because it's going to take years and years and years to cultivate you know, reap the benefits of this investment. But I do think that Sony and Microsoft are very aware of big tech making a move into gaming. This is less about Microsoft versus Sony and way more about the potential of Apple, Google, and Amazon attempting to break into the industry. And we've talked about this over the last few weeks. Both companies are trying to create strongholds in gaming to avoid being crushed by big tech's money. And we've seen it before. We've seen it with social media and Facebook. You know what I mean? Both companies are scared of what's to come, in my opinion. Otherwise, they wouldn't be buying everything up and consolidating the industry to this degree. And I believe it's likely that by the end of 2023, 2024, big tech will actually have a huge influence in the gaming industry. It's just a matter of how. All the power players in gaming are actively trying to box out Apple, Google, Amazon, and Meta from potentially disrupting the industry. It's a scary, scary time now that trillion-dollar companies are looking at video games as their next growth opportunity. And I think that's something that we all should be paying attention to, those of us who are interested in the industry um, and not just the games. What delivery systems are going to be presented to us in the next three to five years, less, two to three years, when it comes to big tech's ability to make money off of us. Say what you want about Microsoft. Say what you want about Sony or Nintendo or Steam. But at the end of the day, I trust those companies way more than I trust Apple, Google, Amazon, and Meta to be able to deliver a good product and not take advantage of the people who are making it or the people who are buying it. So, that's my piece on that. When we come back, because we are going to have to take a break after that gigantic bit of news, when we come back, we are going to jump right into game announcements and delays because we had quite a few this week. And then we're going to talk about the word on the street and talk about some gossip, some rumors, some controversy that we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks. But I want to thank you for tuning in. Please come back. My name is Wack Ops, and this is Hardcore Casual. 
Welcome back to Hardcore Casual. My name is Wack Ops. Woo! We got some game delays and announcements this week, y'all. We have like a lot. Like no, no bullshit. There is a lot going on this week. So let's go ahead and work our way through them. Starting with Ghostwire Tokyo. We finally got a gameplay showcase that gave us quite a bit of gameplay, story, and we also got some developer interviews. If you're not familiar with Ghostwire Tokyo, it is a game that is being made by Tango Gameworks. That's right, under Bethesda Zenimax, a Microsoft-owned business, and it is going to be a PlayStation-timed exclusive. This contract was already written up before the um, Bethesda Zenimax-Microsoft merger. This game is an open-world, first-person action-adventure with horror and RPG elements based in Tokyo. Very, very, very cool-looking game. After everyone in Tokyo vanishes and mysterious supernatural creatures take over the city, you must use your newfound powers to unravel the mystery and save Tokyo. Very fun stuff. I love the concept. I love their use of supernatural elements. If you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. There is a 20-minute video put out by Sony just this week. This showcase was great. I really enjoyed the fact that the latter half of it included developer interviews and gave you a better sense of the game. Now, if you decide to pre-order this game, you not only get three days early access, but you also get some exclusive outfits and gear and things like that. We've done this before. And Ghostwire Tokyo is going to be hitting the PlayStation platform on March 25th. So definitely keep an eye out for that one. Next, we have another Sony exclusive coming out. And this, whew, if you didn't go get a chance to watch the recent Sony State of Play on Gran Turismo 7, please go watch it. This is the premier racing simulator. It is not Forza Horizon, much less arcade than that. It is a true racing sim. And I'll be honest with y'all, this may be the most beautiful game I've ever seen. I No bullshit, this may be the most beautiful game I've ever seen. And just in terms of looks, this would be a pickup. If you're big into visuals and you like learning kind of a more technical sim-based experience, I definitely think you should check this out. This game kind of acts as Sony's answer to Microsoft's Flight Simulator and Forza Horizon. For people who want to take racing a little more seriously and don't necessarily like the arcade style of gameplay that you find in Forza, or if you just want to be thoroughly impressed with stunning visuals in a simulator-style game, I think this is Sony's play at that style of game. So definitely check that out. If you haven't seen the state of play, go watch it. And if you're already locked in and you have seen it, Gran Turismo 7 is going to be coming to us on March 4th. Very excited for that one. Don't know if I'm going to pick that one up yet. I probably have to find a PS5 first, but that's, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Now, let's go ahead and talk about a couple of big names that got some announcements this week. That was just some clerical stuff up front. Let's go ahead and talk about Cyberpunk 2077 and their next-gen release. Okay, this is brought to us from IGN. Quote, As tweeted by the PlayStation Game Size Twitter account, which regularly posts findings from across the PSN database, a new addition suggests that the long-awaited new-gen versions of the CD Projekt Red RPG may be on the way. The new database entry seemingly indicates a native PS5 version of the game with a brand new piece of cover art. Now, if you're on Twitter, if you're on YouTube and things like that, you probably saw this image being circulated 
all over social media. The new cover art looks dope. It shows female V with her back turned, wearing the, you know, the samurai jacket. Very cool. Honestly, let's wait and see if CD Projekt Red can deliver on its promise to release a complete game for current gen consoles. I'm really excited because I put hours in to this game. And honestly, if they manage to pull it off and it comes out to some decent reviews, unlike the original uh, release of Cyberpunk almost what uh, over a little over a year ago now, I may give this game a second chance. I've completed a playthrough on an Xbox One. On the VCR, I completed a 100-hour playthrough, and it it left me pretty disappointed, man, playing through all these bugs and graphical issues and things like that. I really want a chance to play a, what feels like a true playthrough of the game. Um, but very excited for that one. I hope we get to see more from CD Projekt Red, and I hope they are able to get some of their goodwill back from the gaming community after a absolutely disastrous launch, historically so. People bring up the name Cyberpunk 2077, and it is known as probably the worst launch in gaming history, uh, short of a, a few others that we may talk about here in a moment. But let's go ahead and jump into the next announcement that we got this week. Some heavy hitters coming out. Call of Duty 2022 was not so formally announced in a Activision Blizzard investor call, as well as a follow-up tweet by Infinity Ward. So let's go ahead and read you a quote that was found on the Call of Duty announcement page uh, of this, as well as a tweet. Development on this year's premium and Warzone experiences is being led by Activision's renowned Infinity War studio. The team is working on the most ambitious plan in franchise history with industry-leading innovation and a broadly appealing franchise setting. So, this was exciting, really, for one reason. You, you're surprised. Two sentences. How could this be so exciting? For those of us who've been playing Call of Duty for a long, long time, firstly, they're saying that it's the most ambitious in franchise history. That's saying a lot, considering we have the entire Black Ops part of the, the, uh, the franchise. But also, this statement implies that the rumors around a modern setting are all but confirmed. We, those of us who are in the Call of Duty community, have assumed that a you know Modern Warfare Two style game is coming out. Not necessarily a remake from the original, but a sequel to Modern Warfare 2019 will be coming out. Very excited. I hope that that is the case. Now, Infinity Ward came out with a tweet pretty much right after this, and they said, quote, a new generation of Call of Duty is coming soon. Stay frosty. Now, here's why I am excited. Here's why I do have a little bit of faith. is because with the lackluster reception of Vanguard, I think that they might actually try and blow the doors off with this new Call of Duty. And quite frankly, Black Ops, Cold War, even though it was the best-selling Call of Duty of all time because blah, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean it was well-received by the fan base. And I think that they understand Activision Blizzard. I think they understand what their fans want from the franchise, both in terms of setting and in terms of gameplay. And let's hope that they follow through with that. If it ends up being Modern Warfare, I will probably be picking it up and doing my own I guess multiplayer review because I haven't played a campaign in like five or six years. Quite frankly, that's not why I buy Call of Duty. I don't think that's why most people buy Call of Duty. But 
that's enough of the Activision Blizzard Call of Duty news. Let's get into the one that rocked the internet, completely shut everything down this week, and that is the development of Grand Theft Auto 6. Now, this is a direct quote from the Rockstar Newswire. Quote, With the unprecedented longevity of GTA 5, we know many of you have been asking us about a new entry in the Grand Theft Auto series. With every new project we embark on, our goal is always to significantly move beyond what we have previously delivered. And we are pleased to confirm that active development for the next entry in the Grand Theft Auto series is well underway. Whew. Let's just let that sink in for a second. After years of speculation and rumors, we finally got official confirmation that the next entry in the Grand Theft Auto franchise is in active development. We all kind of assume that, considering how long they made us wait, but it is exciting to hear. It's nice to hear. Now, let's rewind a bit, because there has been plenty, plenty, plenty of news around this supposed next Grand Theft Auto game over the last few years from industry insiders such as Jason Schreier and Tom Henderson, who have suggested that the release date could fall within a 2024, 2025 window. And this is just as recently as July of 2021 and earlier. So no, we don't have any updated rumors in terms of a release window, but I do have a lot of faith in Jason Schreier and Tom Henderson's reporting when it comes to certain franchises, especially those over at Rockstar. Now, Another reminder, for those of you who haven't been tapped in, aren't in the know, this will actually be the first Grand Theft Auto created without the involvement of co-founder Dan Hauser, who has been the head writer on numerous Grand Theft Auto games, as well as Red Dead and Bully. So expect big changes, not only in terms of the writing style, but potentially the game direction as a whole. I'm excited about it. I I, I want to see what they do because the lat we've been playing one game for 10 years, man. I first bought this game on my Xbox 360, man. Like, come on, man. Like, this game came out when I was a kid, you know? I want to see what else they can do with it. Now, I will admit, many of us, me included, many people are concerned about Rockstar's success with Grand Theft Auto Online and how it could potentially affect the development of the next Grand Theft Auto. For the potential of an online-only Grand Theft Auto, it, it's worrying to a lot of us who enjoy a single-player offline experience specifically from this franchise. I think of many franchises that I prefer not to play online, and Grand Theft Auto is chief among them. So I certainly hope we don't go down that line. But I'll be honest with you, personally, I don't care about this announcement or the next GTA until we see gameplay. Until there's an actual reveal and not just like, hey man, we're working on it. Like, no, we've been waiting 10 years since the release of GTA 5. And if you consider that, plus the, the, the neglect that Rockstar has, has had for really beloved franchises like Bully and Red Dead Redemption, hashtag save Red Dead Online, many gamers feel like this announcement is like half-hearted. And, and, you know, because they gave us no release window... You know, what are we really supposed to do with this announcement other than sit in our hands and wait? Um, 
<laughs> I hope the, the rest of you can avoid clickbaity videos supposedly having leaks about this game. I'm actually going to try to do my best to stick to the actual, you know, certified leakers, if I can say that, um, and, and people who have had a track record of knowing what's what with the Grand Theft Auto franchise before I report it out. But uh, I am not excited to see how this reawakens all the, the fake clickbaity content for Grand Theft Auto uh, or Call of Duty, what we just talked about. I'm not excited for all these, you know, fake rumors and releases and things like that. So keep your eyes open out there, you know, stay vigilant. But let's go ahead and get into some delays because we had quite a few delays announced this week, just this week. Wow. Um, Let's go ahead and start off with the delay reported out by Bloomberg of Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. It has officially been delayed till 2023. This was a heartbreaker because for those of you that tuned in to my most anticipated games of 2022 episode, definitely go check that out. Those of you who tuned in for that, you know this was high up on my list. I was very excited for this game. I love comic books. I love comic book video games when they're done well. And I was excited for this one because we hadn't really seen a lot from it. But from what we had seen, it looked like a game that was full of humor and I had compared it to what I hoped uh, or what ended up being a really good game from Guardians of the Galaxy. And if it could, you know, marry gameplay with great narrative design, this could be a fantastic game. You know what I mean? That I actually want to play or replay. Um, but it should be mentioned for other games that are being developed over there at Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers Media is still anticipating the release of two other games one of which was, again, on my most anticipated games of 2022. Hogwarts Legacy and Gotham Knights is expected to be released this year. Uh, no official, again, no official release dates yet. We're still waiting and holding our breath on that one. But fingers crossed that Warner Brothers doesn't completely drop the ball because I can't remember the last game that those guys released over there in this realm. Um, I believe it was uh, Arkham Knight, Gotham Arkham Knight. So... We will have to see, but definitely disappointing news from them. More disappointment right ahead because we're going to talk about Halo Infinite and its delay of the co-op and forge modes. This is a tweet directly from Joseph Staten. Quote, hey folks, in November, I said we'd have a Halo Infinite update on our seasonal roadmap, co-op and forge in January. We need more time to finalize our plans, so what we share is something you can rely on. This work is my top priority, and we'll have an update as soon as we can, end quote. So, kind of a big deal. We have been talking about it for two years now. Should Halo have been delayed more? And it's looking every day that passes by, it's, it's looking more and more like that was the case. I personally do not think Halo Infinite was ready for release. Um, co-op, specifically co-op, is a huge hallmark of this franchise. And I know many, many, many people who have been waiting and waiting and waiting to dive into the campaign with their friends, with their homies. And not being able to do that for people who grew up on this genre, grew up with this gameplay... I mean, it is uh, at the center of what makes a Halo game a Halo game is that co-op functionality. And you know what? Unfortunately, 343 Industries 
Despite the well-received launch of Halo Infinite's campaign and multiplayer, it's still not able to develop this beloved franchise in a way that allows longtime fans to enjoy the game in a way that they once did. It's heartbreaking, really. Honestly, like, you can have great core mechanics and a great multiplayer and a great campaign, but if you don't deliver on the promises that you kept to your fan base, people won't forget that. They're not going to let that go so readily. So, <sighs> fingers crossed for that team over at 343 Industries. I know they're under a lot of pressure, but if it weren't for the next story that we're about to talk about, I think there would be a lot more heat, a lot more pressure on the team over at 343 and Halo Infinite as a whole. I know personally many gamers who are just broken by this news and are seriously considering not picking up the game, period, even when co-op and forge modes are reintroduced. They've already talked about whatever the next Halo is, they're not invested in, which is very hard to hear. Now, I told you there would be a lot more heat on Halo if it weren't for this next story. Let's go ahead and talk about one more delay, and this is a big one. Buckle up. Battlefield Season 1 has been delayed until summer. Now, this was announced uh, on Twitter and in an EA investor call. Now, EA did not report sales numbers for the title, uh, which they usually do. All they had to say was Battlefield 2042, quote, did not meet expectations with Apex Legends and FIFA touted as the reason for the quarterly sales success. Um, basically meaning despite the fact that Battlefield 2042 did not meet expectations, they still made buckets and buckets of money because of Apex Legends and FIFA. So this is some news from as far back as Thanksgiving, it just a, a kind of an inkling as to what we're looking at in terms of sales numbers. This is from, again, Tom Henderson. Shout out. That dude does great reporting. Um, as of Thanksgiving, that is, again, one week after the launch of the game, there had been 4.23 million players total, including those, I was one of them, including those that participate in the free trial period. Now, Sales are expected to be significantly less than that. That is scary. You know what I mean? I don't have a comparable on hand right now, but I assure you other games like uh, Battlefield, Call of Duty being their primary competitor, definitely sold more than 4.23 million copies within their first week or so. So definitely uh, disappointing just from what we can gather as far as the sales numbers. Now, EA and DICE, it's clear that they're digging their own grave even deeper here. You know, they're causing longtime fans who already had little faith to have no faith, pretty much, in the success and longevity of this game, and quite frankly, the franchise as a whole. Many, many people are saying, like, hardcore, lifetime Battlefield fans are saying this is the end of the, the, the franchise. This is it. You know, it didn't go out with a bang, but with a whimper type of stuff out there. Let's not forget, EA has a history of abandoning live service titles. And that conflicts with their statement that they are, quote, fully committed to realizing the full potential of this game. Let's remind ourselves that they said the exact same thing about Anthem and Battlefield Five as of recent. EA has reduced the outlook of Battlefield for the next year. What that means is they went from saying that Battlefield would be roughly 10% of the money they make next year 
cut it in half to 5%. This also contradicts their statement regarding full commitment to the potential of the game and the franchise. I think that they are certainly looking at ditching this game if season one isn't a success this summer. EA CEO Andrew Wilson said, quote, DICE is a studio that has been able to do this a number of times now when talking about their ability to fix the game after launch. But this is a problem for many people who are fans of any EA live service title. Many in the community feel that EA just simply has not learned their lesson when it comes to releasing incomplete games. EA, as the publisher, blames DICE as the developer for the poor performance. Though, I think it's pretty safe to say both parties are fully responsible for this disaster. Not only because EA, as the publisher, set expectations too high as far as a release date. They needed to get Battlefield out this year but for the holiday season. And DICE made poor design choices in terms of the, the direction that they wanted to take this title and took a lot of what made Battlefield Battlefield away from the community. This is heartbreaking news because I love to see competition within, you know, different subgenres or genres of the gaming industry as a whole. And to see one of Call of Duty's big competitors in the space take a hit like this and potentially be done as a franchise really doesn't bode well for any fans of any of this genre of games because less competition does not benefit us. So let's hope, fingers crossed, that EA and DICE can get their shit together and deliver us something amazing this summer. Now, with that, we're going to go ahead and roll into our second break. When we come back, as promised, we're going to get to the Word on the Street segment. We're going to be talking about more Sony news, some Google Stadia news, and what did Nintendo have to say about the metaverse. So please, stay tuned. My name is Wack Ops, and this is Hardcore Casual. What's going on, y'all? Welcome back to Hardcore Casual. My name is Wack Ops, your beloved host. Let's go ahead and jump right into our next segment. That is the Word on the Street, where we talk rumors, gossip, and controversy. Now, our first story up, we're going to go ahead and revisit that Sony Bungie deal because it's very pertinent to what we're about to talk about. Now, Sony, on an earnings call this last week, announced that they have plans to make 10, count them, 10 live service games by the end of March 2026. Crazy. First of all, that's a lot of saturation in the uh, live service market. So if you are tired of those kinds of titles, buckle up because we're getting a hell of a lot more. But this definitely puts into context the Bungie acquisition. Considering Bungie is already working on a new major IP, this is according to VGC. Now, with plans to release roughly two to three live service games a year, Sony seems to be throwing everything that they can into the multiplayer space and seeing what sticks. I think they're going with the Ubisoft approach to this where they're just throwing shit at the wall and until something comes up lucrative for them. 
Um, which, I mean, I can't really blame them for that being their strategy at this point because they're so far behind other companies who have already started getting the ball rolling, hence the purchase of Bungie. Now, a lot of players are concerned, and we spoke about this when we talked about the Sony Bungie acquisition at the beginning of the show. A lot of players are concerned that this may be a move away from the single-player narrative-driven games that Sony is known for, I, I disagree. I think the live service model looks to supplement the cost of those single-player games that Sony wants to make as budgets begin to balloon. Let's, let's talk about God of War. Let's talk about Horizon. These games cost hundreds of millions of dollars. You know what I mean? And it's only going to get more expensive in the space to be able to make these huge, big-budget AAA games. First-party multiplayer games over on the Sony side are severely lacking. And looking into the future of Sony, I think investing in these games allow them to be able to do what they want on the creative side, but I think it's also more lucrative for them to allow their uh, development teams to make games that, rather than being dozens of hours of play, promote hundreds of hours of play. Again, like a Destiny like a uh, Call of Duty Warzone, like a, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Now, it is a big deal because many of us kind of had hoped that the microtransaction DLC thing would kind of, you know, come up and, and come back down and, and things would kind of go back to the way they were with games where people were making these single-player experiences. We had a whole conversation about single-player games being dead, not just a couple of years ago. But I think the industry sees the huge market that is multiplayer live service games and how much money companies like EA, Ubisoft, Activision, and Bungie make from these things. And I don't think that they're going away anytime soon. More than that, I think games as a service is the business model for developers, but for publishers making video games in general a service-based industry rather than a product-based industry is going to be the future. Ergo, you know, Microsoft Game Pass, Sony Spartacus, etc. And I think if you're going to want that kind of single-player focused experience, it's probably going to be from the Nintendo side of things or looking for more indie titles. So we, we shall see. But that's enough talk of the, the Sony Bungie stuff for now. I'm sure more will come out of it and we'll have more to talk about. But speaking of games as a service, let's talk about Google Stadia, because it has officially died. It's dead. It's over. This is according to Business Insider. Google is no longer continuing its venture into gaming specifically. Rather, they are now selling the underlying technology, the streaming technology, to other companies, including Peloton, Capcom, and Bungie. They are rebranding Google Stadia and its technology as a white-label brand called Google Stream, and it looks to leverage its low-latency, high-definition cloud streaming and is officially deprioritizing securing AAA games for the Stadia platform. Google Stadia, you know, a lot of people laugh, but I think it was a good idea. I think Google just had... Great tech, but not great uh, business finesse. You know what I mean? I think 
Google Stadia may have arrived too early, and Google didn't commit enough to it. Look at Microsoft with Xbox. They are all the way in. They spent nearly $70 billion <laughs> just this year <laughs> trying to secure just one publisher in the gaming space. Google was not willing to do the same thing. Google Stadia failed because of its business model, yes. Subscription and purchasing games individually, it's just too much for the consumer to be able to, like, I got to pay you a monthly fee and I got to buy these games at full price and I can't even play it without an internet connection. It's just not a great um, proposition for most gamers right now. But, you know, if it was five or ten years from now, potentially, because who knows, maybe cloud streaming, cloud gaming will be the mainstay. We shall see. But it's also, you know, it limits your customer base if you don't have a consistent internet connection, myself included. I don't have fiber in my house. If I did, sure, Google Stadia all the way. Dope. But most people can't afford that. Most people don't have access to, you know, very fast, reliable internet connections. And quite frankly, at the end of the day, it came down to a lack of games. Toward the end of its life, Google Stadia did not have, like I said, it didn't invest in securing these AAA games for the platform, and now they've officially stopped doing so. My biggest hope that comes out of this, one, I hope that other companies are able to utilize Google's underlying technology, the Google Stream technology, because I do think that kind of breaking up these businesses into different aspects of the industry, rather than having, you know, one vertical integrated business handling all of it, I think is going to be helpful for us. It, it is a work away from consolidation. But I also hope that this discourages other major players in big tech, like we've talked about before, Amazon, Apple, Meta, from thinking they can just break into the gaming industry and it's just easy to disrupt. I really hope that they're looking at Google like, man, if Google couldn't do it, you know what I mean? I hope they look at Amazon Luna and they're like, man, if Amazon couldn't do it, that they kind of rethink their strategy. And if they want a piece of the gaming community, they get down with how consumers are accustomed to getting down. You know what I mean? I hope they actually want to bring value to the industry rather than just siphon off money via live streaming services like Google Stadia. Now, Got one more story for you before we get into the Dying Light 2 review, rewind. And this one, again, a huge story. This week was just full of just huge industry-shattering stories. But Nintendo actually finally made specific comments as it relates to the metaverse and, I mean, loosely, NFTs in its Nintendo earnings call. You may have seen some publications kind of translating this not so accurately. Um, VGC in particular had written a headline saying, you know, Nintendo says it's interested in NFTs and the metaverse. Um, I think that is true, but not fully accurate. So I'm going to read to you the full translation. This was posted by, uh, Nebelian over on Twitter. He, uh, translated this over to English for us. Uh, there will be a official translation put out by Nintendo soon, but this is what we have to work with for right now. So, this was asked by an investor to CEO Furukara um, just on the last investor call this week. Quote, question, what is your approach to the metaverse and NFT? 
you may already be working on this in Animal Crossing, Atsumeri, Animal Crossing, but I would like to ask you about the metaverse, which has a lot of potential at this time. I'd like to know as much as you can tell me in terms of points. Answer, this is Furukawa. The metaverse is attracting the attention of many companies around the world, and we believe it has great potential. In addition, software such as Animal Crossing New Leaf has been introduced in the media as an example of the metaverse, and in a sense, we are interested in it. On the other hand, it is not easy to define in an easy-to-understand manner what kinds of surprises and fun can be provided to customers by the metaverse at this time. As a company that offers entertainment, we place the utmost importance on how to deliver fresh surprises and fun to our customers. So if we can find a way to communicate our, quote, Nintendo approach to many people in an easy-to-understand manner, we may be able to consider something. That's a lot of maybes. That's a lot of maybes. You know what I mean? They're very hesitant. You know what I mean? Like, they want their money, too. And it seems like they've already kind of built their own metaverse-ish thing with Animal Crossing and things like that. But until it is easy to understand, and they, like they said, the utmost importance on delivering fresh surprises and fun to our customers, I think until they can find a way to really give the people what they want with this metaverse, with NFTs, I don't think they're going to jump in. You know what I mean? I love their response to this. Because it emphasizes them as an entertainment company and the value that they provide their customers rather than, you know, hey guys, look at this shiny new thing that doesn't service you at all, that doesn't provide you anything extra in terms of what you already had for free or for the cost of your $60, your $40, your whatever. At the very least, it sounds like Nintendo, like I said, is hesitant to jump in without having a clear vision and focus on what is bringing fun to Nintendo customers, which, thank God. You know what I mean? Thank God. They also want things to be very easy to understand, um, which is discouraging in a way because once they figure that out, I expect Nintendo to jump in. I'm, I hope that it's not five or ten years down the line, or I hope that it is five or ten years down the line and not tomorrow. But yeah, the metaverse space right now for many consumers is overly complicated and not particularly accessible or attractive. You know what I mean? The metaverse stuff we've seen doesn't look great. You know what I mean? You have to have certain accounts or you have to build a crypto wallet or all kinds of nonsense. People don't want to do that. A lot of people, at least in the gaming space, have no interest in that. And if they did, then you would see some of these other companies not have to backpedal from their announcements of investing in the NFT market or the metaverse concept or whatever the case may be. So at least we have some kind of good news from Nintendo as far as the metaverse NFT stuff. I know we have just been hit with horrible news and horrible news from beloved gaming companies that want to continue bleeding us dry for our money. Capcom, Konami, Atari, Ubisoft, like there's countless examples at this point. And we're going to have to see if people actually deliver on saying that this is not what we want. Let's see if the consumers will actually vote with their dollar. And I think Nintendo is smart enough to protect their business 
from that kind of ire from their own community because Nintendo fanboys are the most loyal out of any of the gaming companies. Say what you want about Sony and Microsoft stands or whatever. Nah, bro. Nintendo fans buy everything no matter what. I mean, yeah, for sure. 100%. Look at Pokemon. Look at Mario. Look at any any of their IP. It's It's honestly really impressive. But I'm sure we will have more to say about NFTs and Nintendo in our next episode or just in the future in general. Until then, I want to talk to you guys about the latest release that just happened this Friday, and that is why I'm bringing you to the Review Rewind segment of the show. This is where we revisit the community response to the latest game releases and bring some titles to your attention. This week, it's all about Dying Light 2 Stay Human. If you don't know, here it is. This post-apocalyptic open-world zombie action RPG... God, that's a mouthful, right? This post-apocalyptic open-world zombie action RPG has been highly anticipated for years after the well-received Dying Light. That's the first one. After delays and controversy, Techland Studios has finally released Dying Light to Stay Human. Now, how was it received by critics? Open Critic, that's where I like to check my games out. The top critic average was a 77 with 71% of critics recommending. Oof, not the greatest reception, considering, as we know, a 7 is pretty low in terms of the AAA space. But let's not forget that Techland is not a AAA developer, technically. They are very much kind of a AA indie studio, depending on how you define that. This is a AAA title in look and feel and scope and ambition, But this is definitely from a smaller team, and you can tell this had a lot of heart. The team over at Techland put a hell of a lot of heart into this title. So let's talk about it. Dying Light 2 Stay Human is being received by critics as a somewhat underwhelming game, narratively speaking. Alongside a string of technical issues and bugs, Dying Light 2 has not left the mark that Techland had hoped. With that being said... Many have revered the title for its incredibly fun gameplay, as traversal mechanics are some of the best in the industry. So, if you have watched any gameplay preview, the big selling point is this is the parkour zombie RPG, open world RPG game. The parkour is the big, meaty selling point, being able to traverse the city in a way that is, um, you know, impactful. Let's get the negatives out of the way and really talk about what people's problem with the game is. Firstly, narrative. While subjective, you know what I mean, many critics left Dying Light 2 without a strong sense of connection to its central characters, especially the main character kind of feeling like he was a placeholder to push you through the story rather than a character with thoughts and feelings of his own. Many also have cited the underdeveloped voice performances, feeling they were either campy or overdone or just straight up underwhelming, and in addition, a somewhat predictable uh, story and and writing, um, which is disappointing. It sounds like there were too many cooks in the kitchen and there were quite a few rewrites, which kind of ended up forcing this game to have, I wouldn't say a completely predictable ending, but somewhat predictable writing in terms of some of the key story arcs. Now, The big one that dings many, many games at launch and end up carrying on into how we look at the game in the future 
is performance. Like many games released in the last few years, it seems like Dying Light 2's mediocre scores are very much being affected by its technical performance. Many outlets are citing near-game-breaking bugs on console, deviating from the immersion and harming the amazingly crafted open world. PC players have found, you know, it's somewhat disappointing that most PC setups will not be able to run the game at 4K without serious sacrifices to frame rate. Though, a day one patch has alleviated much of the more severe bugs, it is clear that the performance of this title has hindered its reception, which always hurts my heart because I, I feel like, especially with this game having been delayed a nu numerous times, and there was quite a bit of controversy around them wanting to introduce uh, NFTs and things like that. I think it had to be solid at launch for people to really get the most out of this game. Um, and and game-breaking bugs, I heard there were some, uh, some bugs that completely wiped people's saves and things like that. They have been fixed. I want to make it clear. Those particular bugs have been fixed, but when reviewers experience those things, you're going to hear about it. And that... Uh, that is disappointing because I think that this game had a lot of potential. Now, speaking of potential, let's go ahead and get into some of the positives that I've heard about this game. Two primarily, gameplay and the open world. So, gameplay. From nearly every review that I was able to find out there, there was one aspect that was absolutely solid, and that was the traversal. The parkour element of Dying Light 2 is not only a huge selling point for those who are looking to purchase the game, but it was also executed beautifully. The only complaint that I had heard mentioned uh, about the traversal was that some of the traversal options had been gated behind character progression. You're going to have to level up and invest with your points or whatever, your skill points into some traversal options before you get to, you know, just travel the world seamlessly from one thing to, to the next. So, Definitely uh, a little disappointing that those were gated, but I do think that I would want to play this game just to run around. I heard that the traversal, I heard the traversal compared to even the web swinging from uh, Spider-Man 2018 and Miles Morales uh, from Sony. And that is a huge compliment because I know people who literally just web swing in that game just to chill out and relax like they won't even play the game they're just swinging around the city and i think if that's something that dying light 2 can hit i think that's pretty cool you know what i mean having a mechanic that works so well that it kind of carries your game it should also be mentioned that the combat elements of dying light 2 did not allow for enough variety to everyone's liking with some reviewers feeling that it became a bit repetitive toward the end of the game so for those of you looking for combat challenges, I'm not entirely sure that you're going to find it here with this title. But for those of you who like exploration, I think this is going to be a fantastic title. And that's highlighted in our next positive, which is the open world. Much like the traversal mechanics, Dying Light 2 is being celebrated for its incredibly fleshed out and detailed open world. Amazing draw distances and impactful attention to detail left many reviewers with a wonderful sense of lived-in, immersive exploration. Despite the Ubisoft-style, quote-unquote, you know what I mean, map design, 
This game overcomes that by creating a textured world that changes with your choices and progression. So yes, there are going to be map markers and kind of a checkboxy way of getting around and completing everything. But because so much of that is self-involved and immersive and you can tell that so much heart <laughs> went into the design of every particular location, it makes it very, very good and very, very fun. I think a lot of people really, that's what made the technical problems so impactful was because they were enjoying the world so much. From the fun of moving effortlessly from building to building on the rooftops of the city to the fear and anxiety of finding your character being chased through the world by bloodthirsty zombies, Dying Light 2 delivers on an open world that should be explored by anybody that chooses to purchase this game. I think this game had a lot of potential, has a lot of potential. I don't know that I'm going to be picking it up because I do want to play through the first Dying Light to see. And I also want to wait for more of these bugs and performance uh, issues to be worked out. You know what I mean? I think that's what a lot of people had said in their reviews was give this some time, wait for a price drop, and you will find plenty of fun to be had with this game. If you are a gamer that prioritizes gameplay over visuals or narrative, I think this is a fantastic pickup to lose yourself in for hundreds of hours. Though, I won't be picking up this game based on reviews that I read from reviewers I trust. I would recommend Dying Light 2 to any gamer that loves well-crafted open worlds, frenetic gameplay, and blood-pumping moment-to-moment experiences. But you've heard what I think. I want to hear what you think. For those of you that went and picked up Dying Light, please tell me what you thought of it. Are these reviews overblown? Are reviewers tripping? Is this another example of critics being too hard on a well-received and beloved title from fans? Tell me what you think of Nintendo's comments on the metaverse and NFT what do you guys think about this Bungie deal? Is this going to affect you if you're a Destiny 2 player or if you're a Sony fan? Are you worried about them moving into live service? Definitely let me know how you guys are feeling about this GTA announcement, this Cyberpunk announcement, and this Call of Duty announcement because these are all huge, huge titles, very impactful on the space, huge money makers. And I want to see of all of these games what you're most excited for. So please don't forget to holla at me come and join us and be a part of a growing community and don't forget to support the show you can write in to whackops at gmail.com you can hit us up on twitter or instagram that's at whackops w-h-a-c-k-o-p-z if you're showing love i need the sub if you're trying to holla i need the follow if you enjoy the content don't forget to comment and if you're liking what we do please download share and review we are on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you enjoy podcasts. Let's go ahead and talk about our weekly Twitter poll. If you could only play one game in the month of February, which game are you playing? Your options are Elden Ring, Horizon Forbidden West, Dying Light 2, and Sifu. Very exciting month for gaming. Very, very exciting stuff. I'm going to leave you, as I always do, with the shout-out of the week where we give people their flowers and hold them up high. And let's go ahead and talk about Black History Month and celebrating black creators. I'm going to give you a list of different black creators you should go out and support. If you're still looking for some black creators who could use your support, 
who could definitely use your views, your likes, your clicks, your subscriptions outside of just this show. Here's a list of wonderful people whose content I enjoy on a regular basis. Khalif Adams on Twitch, host of the Spawn on Me podcast. Amazee on Twitch. That's U-H-M-A-A-Y-Y-Z-E. Drunken Buddha on Twitch. Cleopatra Jones on Twitch. Kareem Cheese on Twitch. The Black Hokage on Twitch and host of G4. Blessing Jr. on Twitch and one of the hosts of PS I Love You podcast. E-Man's Movie Reviews on YouTube for those of you who are into film and television. Just My Opinion Reviews, another fantastic movie and television show reviewer on YouTube. The Mighty Keith on YouTube and Twitch. And lastly, The Dystopian Nerd on YouTube. Please do not forget what, what month it is. Please support Black Creators year-round. Once February ends and it moves into March and April and May and all these other times in the year, don't forget about us. Please reach out, vote with your dollar, and support a Black creator today. But with that, I love you all. Thank you for tuning in. I am Whack Ops. This is Hardcore Casual. Have fun, be cool, and stay dangerous. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardcore Casual. Join us next Friday with your friendly neighborhood news aggregator, WACOPS. You can also follow us on social media at WACOPS, on Instagram and Twitter. Support the show by downloading, sharing, and reviewing. Available on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and Stitcher. See you next week.